what we find in this first lesson is that the, the author of the lesson, Mike, uh, what he does is he highlights the, the similar and separate features possessed by God's kingdom and all other kingdoms that have been established by men. So what it gets down to is this. No matter our political perspective here in the United States, we should be grateful that we still have the freedom to vote. We should be grateful that we still have a freedom of voice, or rather to voice an opinion about our government, unlike other places. But there's a catch here. As Christians, we need to remember not only our blessings of freedom here and the opportunity to participate in the government of this nation, we must also remember something else. We must remember that we belong to the government of another world as well. And this government is referred to as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Jesus explained the duality of our situation when he answered Pilate's question concerning his true identity as the king of this other nation or of this other government. So what we're going to do is read from John chapter 18, verses 33 through 36. We're going to read what Christ Jesus said there so that we can familiarize ourselves with this idea since it is the theme of this brief lesson. So John chapter 18, starting at verse 33, the Bible reads, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Verse 35, Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So I want to describe the kingdom of God, the government that we actually belong to as Christians that is present in this world and will exist in the world to come. When this world will no longer be the first thing the Bible teaches concerning the kingdom is that it is not of this world, but it teaches us this instead. It teaches us the kingdom of God was the subject of prophecy. If you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. So again, this kingdom that we're talking about, it was the subject of prophecy, the government of the United States has existed for over 200 years, as we know, and, and it rules over a vast nation of, of millions of citizens. However, no one in the distant past was able to predict when it would come into existence or how long it would be in existence. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, was the subject of prophecy centuries before it was realized here on earth. And as previously mentioned, was spoken of in the book of Daniel some 600 years before its arrival, which makes it a truly amazing thing. Now, in addition to this, it was also prophesied that it will continue to exist 
without end. Now, some some appear. Some, if not all, the people here today may be familiar with the book of uh, Daniel. So let me just summarize what it said about the kingdom. Daniel and other young Jewish men of noble blood were carried off into Babylonian, Babylonian captivity, where they were, by the grace of God and their faithfulness to him, they were raised to high levels in the court of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Soon after, Daniel was called upon to interpret a strange and disturbing dream that, that the king had experienced. In this dream, God revealed the, the sweep of history that was to come, as well as historical markers for the arrival and the development of God's own kingdom here on earth. Daniel's inspired interpretation of this dream is recorded in Daniel chapter 2, and its accuracy concerning future earthly kingdoms was, was firmly established as history unfolded. So as we turn to Daniel chapter 2, starting to verse 31, the Bible reads, and we're going to read it to verse 35, take a break, and then we're going to come back and start at verse 36. The Bible reads, You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. It became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. We haven't read the entire passage here yet in Daniel dealing with this topic, but I want to mention what a miracle this prophecy was. Because you see, first of all, Daniel described a dream that, that the king had without any help from the king. Why? Because the king had kept the nature of his, his dream secret as a way of testing the legitimacy of his interpreters. He said in testing his magicians and soothsayers, I want you to interpret my dream. And they answered him, Give us the dream and we will give you the interpretation. And he answered them, No, you tell me what I dreamt and you will interpret its meaning. Now, of course, none of them could do that until Daniel was summoned by the king. Now at this point Daniel Daniel not only described the king's dream but he also detailed the meaning of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. In his explanation Daniel accurately described the rise and the fall of four world empires in correct succession over a period of 600 of 6 centuries into the future. And this actually if you want to look at it another way 26 centuries 
if you count the kingdom of God in its continuation to this day. If we examine, oops, there we go. If we examine his interpretation, we note that the statue is made of many parts. A head of gold, a breast and arms of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, and legs and feet of a mixture of iron and clay. As we turn our attention to verse 36. Now in this dream, a stone cut without human hands appears to, to strike the statue, not on the head, but on his feet of iron and clay, reducing the entire statue to dust, which is blown away. Daniel then describes that in the place of the statue, the stone used to destroy it becomes a mountain that eventually fills the entire earth. Now, starting at verse 36. The Bible reads, this was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. When this we here does not include the magicians and the soothsayers. He is talking about his relationship with God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, giving him this information. Verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all of these in pieces. And that you say the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet are partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And so in his interpretation, Daniel names five kingdoms, the first one being the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. This was a, a fitting symbol because Babylon was the finest of the ancient kingdoms. The second one, the Medo-Persian Empire, the breast of silver. 
Daniel mentions two arms, which describes the dual nature of this empire, ruled by a combination of the Medes and the Persians. They were noted for their great wealth, often seen in their abundance of silver coinage. The third kingdom, the Greek empire, the belly and the hip of brass. Alexander the Great, the last of the um, Medo-Persian kings, uh, rather, Alexander the Great defeated the last of the Medo-Persian kings, Darius III, in 330 B.C. The Greeks innovated the arms of war by using brass armor as protection. Greece was then defeated and absorbed by Rome in 146 B.C., and their kingdom lasted from 330 to uh, 146 B.C. The Fourth Empire. The Roman Empire. Legs of iron with feet of clay. Why iron? Because the Romans innovated the use of this metal in warfare. As it grew, Rome would make alliances, if you will, with foreign kings, which ultimately weakened the empire and was a factor in the demise of Rome in 476 AD when Romulus was defeated by, uh, he was the last of the emperors and he was overthrown by a German leader by the name of Odoacer, who became the first barbarian to rule in Rome. The idea of the mixture of iron and clay suggested the following. Normally, normally Rome would simply conquer a people and take over. But as time uh, went by, their empire expanded, and what they did instead of conquer, they decided to make alliances uh, with the other countries, the other countries that they were conquering. And this explains the clay-iron mixture imagery. These nominal alliances proved to be the weakness of the, uh, that led to the Roman Empire's downfall. Now note carefully that all of these kingdoms succeeded each other in history, and Daniel correctly described their appearance and their demise in proper order, and doing so in the power and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Could you imagine correctly predicting four different nations over a period of 600 years? Nothing short of divine, nothing short of divine inspiration could achieve this. Daniel not only mentions the four kingdoms, he also describes the arrival and ascent of the fifth and final kingdom, which we now know as the kingdom of God. This was a stone that grew into a mountain which covered the earth just as God's kingdom has done. So when we look at the fifth kingdom, it is the kingdom of God. Remember the stone that was cut from the mountain. Note carefully what Daniel says about the fifth kingdom appearing as a stone that grows into a mountain. Two things here. Number one, well, it's more than it's about four things, five things. It's time of appearance. It appeared during the fourth kingdom which was the time when Rome dominated the entire world. Notice place, the place of its appearance. It says that the stone struck the feet of the statue, not the head. Now, in the context of the Roman Empire, the head would have been uh, the city of Rome, the capital city itself, which in reality, that's where most people went when they went to defeat Rome. 
uh, the, the Roman Empire. Yet in his dream and his interpretation, Tan Daniel says that the stone doesn't hit the head to destroy the empire, but strikes the feet, representing the uh, outlying provinces. This would include pro the province of Judea, where Christ Jesus ministered and established his church. The third thing is the type of kingdom. The stone cut without hands is a way of denoting that this would be a supernatural kingdom, not a temporal one, like those before it. And note that unlike these other kingdoms, Daniel states that the fifth kingdom would be established by God. Again, I take you to, to uh, Daniel 2 at verse 44. Then the fourth item is the duration of this kingdom. Other kingdoms had periods of glory and power lasting centuries, but Daniel says that the fifth kingdom would be everlasting, never to fall. The image of the stone growing into a mountain, filling the earth, symbolizes a kingdom that would dominate every other kingdom in history. Therefore, some 600 years before Christ Jesus, a Jewish prophet spoke of four kingdoms that would rise and fall until a fifth kingdom would be established that would dominate the world and last forever. The Bible tells us that for six centuries, the Jewish people waited for this kingdom prophesied by their own prophet, Daniel. Then one day a prophet in the spirit of Elijah announced, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3 at verse 3. Can we understand then why John the Baptist's preaching caused such a, a rather so much excitement among the people? And so in speaking of the kingdom that is not of this world, we note first of all that this kingdom was spoken of in prophecy, which has since been confirmed by history. So we see, first of all, that the kingdom was the subject of prophecy. Next thing we see is this. The kingdom is on earth, but spiritual in nature. So Daniel predicted that the kingdom was to come. John the baptizer preached that it was at hand. Christ Jesus proclaimed that it was here. For Jews, as a people who had actually lived through these four empires mentioned by Daniel, this was indeed exciting news for them. For some, it rekindled nationalistic aspirations that had appeared throughout their history. Many had a, a Davidic concept of the kingdom, if you will. In other words, their hope was that God would send a king like David, who would lead them out of bondage and regain their lost earthly and political territories. They believed that the day of the Lord was to be a time when, when the nation would be restored. And we can read more about this at, at uh, Amos chapter 9 and verse 14, as well as Zechariah chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. They believed that the nation would be restored and other nations would be judged. Their hope was kindled and dashed repeatedly throughout the post-United Kingdom history. In other words, after the United Kingdom, 
This hope of a Messiah kept rising and falling as one leader after another appeared, claiming that they were the Messiah from Zerubbabel, who was who led the first wave of exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem to the Maccabean revolt. Their hope was for a kingdom that, or rather their hope was for a kingdom of this world peopled by Jews. Their kingdom dream was a dream of Jewish nationalism, if you will. During this, during the uh, intertestamentary period, uh, 4 BC, 400 BC through 6 AD, another view of the kingdom began to develop among non-inspired writings at that time, writings that we call apocalyptic literature. The writings of this era hoped for a, a heavenly kingdom that would end the, the present evil age. For example, there's a book called the uh, Jubilee, the book of Jubilee, uh, chapter 23, verse 29. The author suggests a golden age to come in which God himself would usher in his kingdom, reversing the rule and the evil of Satan. Because of this type of uninspired literature, however, there were many false ideas of the kingdom that were swirling around the people for centuries before Christ Jesus actually arrived. These and various combinations of uninspired ideas were present in the minds of people, of the people, I should say, as John the Baptizer spoke of the kingdom. So I think we can understand, therefore, that when the people heard Jesus teach that the kingdom had arrived and they witnessed his powerful miracles, they were ready to crown him king. And whether he liked it or not, he fulfilled all of their aspirations. So just think about that, how people are sometimes. You know, imagine a candidate for president who can do miracles, right? What would you think of him if he had a rally or she had a rally of, let's say, 10,000 people present and that person miraculously produced food and fed every one of them? Would you want to vote for this person to be leader of the nation? Well, this was the feeling at the time about Jesus. But then he began describing the kingdom in detail. And when he started that, it didn't fit any of the notions that the writers and the people had hoped for. In addition to this, Jesus explained the nature of the kingdom in, in abstract terms by, with the use of parables and, and, and without reference to political power, military dominance, or any kind of economic features. For example, he said the kingdom was like a mustard seed. It was like a man who sowed seed, leaven that leavened dough, a net that catches fish, a relationship between a master and a servant, a person that finds a pearl or a treasure. True to Daniel's words, Jesus began to teach the people that the kingdom was supernatural in nature, not political. And furthermore, the kingdom is not of this world. They were expecting a kingdom definitely of this world. Jesus didn't mean that the kingdom had no power or authority. That's not what he meant. It simply meant that as a spiritual kingdom, its power and its authority were derived and controlled by God, not armies, 
or human leaders. The kingdom of Jesus, that Jesus and the apostles announced, was small enough to exist in one person's heart. It was big enough to include all who would enter in. It was powerful enough to dominate every other kingdom. And it was so precious that when someone found it, they would abandon everything they owned in order to possess it. And yet, was so elusive that some people stood right next to it, but didn't even see it. Finally, the kingdom that Jesus spoke about was being built in their lifetimes exactly as Daniel had spoken. So the third one is part is this, the kingdom has been established. If you turn to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 6 rather, verses 9 and 10, Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 and 10, the Bible reads, well, we haven't gotten to that point yet. But the point here is that the kingdom is that which belongs to the king. This is the earthly and physical understanding of the term kingdom. So in Matthew chapter 6 at verse 9 and 10, the Bible reads, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this passage, Jesus mentions one kingdom existing simultaneously in two spheres. One kingdom is on earth that had yet to be established, and the other one was in heaven already established. Therefore, Jesus was praying that the will of God be done on earth as it was already being done in heaven. Now, an important point to note here is that the kingdom of God exists wherever his will is being done because the word kingdom comes from a Greek word which means sovereignty or will. In Matthew 6 verses 9 and 10, Jesus prayed that God's will be done here on earth as it was done in heaven. In essence, he was praying that God's kingdom be established here just as God's will was being done in heaven. When this happens, God's will, the kingdom established, is being fulfilled in both the heavenly and earthly realms. I'm going to take you to our first Timothy chapter two, verses three through six. First Timothy chapter two, verses three through six. And so if we want to know what the kingdom looks like, we need to examine what God's will is for all men. Because the kingdom exists wherever and whenever God's will is being done. As Paul writes, this is good and acceptable in sight of God our, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So what is God's will? What is God's will? It is this, that all men come to know Jesus Christ as the Son of God and be saved through him. This is God's will. 
when that will is being accomplished, the kingdom of God is being established. An important point to note here is that the kingdom of God exists wherever his will is being done. And Paul summarizes this in this brief passage. As the apostle writes, God's will is that all mankind recognize the truth that Jesus Christ is the son of God and they will be saved as a result. Now, insofar as the kingdom is concerned, it is being established whenever and wherever people are confessing Christ Jesus and expressing this faith in repentance and baptism, as we read in Acts 2 at verse 38. When they do that, the kingdom of God on earth is being established and the kingdom is growing. This knowledge unlocks all of the parables about the kingdom. And these are a series of questions. And here they are. Isn't Jesus the pearl of great price? And are we not willing to abandon everything in order to have him? Isn't the word of God the leaven that permeates the entire life of a man or a woman? Isn't preaching the gospel a great net that draws in many hearers, but they are eventually reduced to just a few believers? Isn't Jesus the master that leaves his disciples to care for the kingdom and will return one day to examine their stewardship? Isn't the knowledge of God's will small enough to exist in one believer's heart, yet big enough to reach every soul in the world? And finally, isn't God's will powerful enough to destroy every human kingdom while sustaining his own kingdom to the end of time and beyond? We are not premillennialists who are waiting for the kingdom to come. And we are not postmillennialists who think much like the Jews of the first century, that the kingdom will be some kind of golden age where the church would dominate here on earth until Jesus returned. We don't believe that. Our view is much simpler to understand, taken primarily from the previously quoted Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10 where Jesus prays that the kingdom is simply God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. When seen through the lenses of the kingdom, we understand that all who are in heaven are previously, or rather are obviously under the authority and the will of God. And so, the kingdom of God is firmly established there. Jesus' prayer is that God's will, that man's salvation through Christ also be established here on earth. Therefore, when someone asks when or how was God's kingdom established here on earth, the reply, according to scripture, should be the following. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of Christ was established when the gospel began to be preached and people responded to it in faithful obedience. That's when the kingdom was established. That's when the doors were opened. That's when people started coming in. 
Acts 2, verse 36. Acts 2, verse 36. Now, to be more specific, the kingdom was established when Christ Jesus defeated sin and death with his resurrection to accomplish the first part of God's will. And that was to provide redemption for man's sins through the sacrifice of his son. And the doors to the kingdom at that time were flung open as the apostles were the first to enter in. And then on Pentecost Sunday, they began to preach the gospel to invite everyone who believed to also enter into the kingdom of God. A passage, it's a familiar passage, but it is is an important one when we read this. So we go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. The Bible reads, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. As Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, but as we have learned, it is very much in this world and embodied by those who have added, who have been added to it through faith in Christ Jesus expressed in repentance and baptism. So let's look at a moment, the development of this kingdom. So far, we have seen how and when the kingdom was established. Now, one other thing we need to examine, how the kingdom grows, because Jesus often spoke of this growth and development. So here's a summary of the two ways he referred to this phenomenon. First, as it relates, as it is related to an individual, let's say. So the kingdom of God is within you, it's within me. Christ Jesus used the example of a seed or, or leaven referring to agents that worked on the inside of a person to cause growth. These agents were figures representing God's word given through the Holy Spirit and recorded by the apostles. The kingdom, that is the ability to do God's will and become like Christ, the kingdom grows within the individual as 
he internalizes and submits to the the direction of God's word. So the question is this simple. How do I grow in Christ? The answer to that question is I obey his word. The growth of the kingdom within within becomes evident externally as the kingdom dweller produces spiritual fruit. And we talk about spiritual fruits. We see those in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, uh, uh, holiness, service, etc. Paul calls it the fruit of the spirit. But we could just as easily call it the fruit of the kingdom or the kingdom within the believer. Therefore, when you see these things developed in one's life in the name of Christ Jesus, you are seeing the kingdom that is not of this world living within the believer who is in this world. And so we talked about the individual side of it. Now let's look at the kingdom from the collective sense. Jesus, the apostles, and other New Testament writers use different words when referring to the kingdom collectively. In other words, many people in whom the kingdom was present use terms like church, the saints, household of God, etc. This collective kingdom grows in numbers and spiritual influence on the world as it spreads the gospel of Christ Jesus and the kingdom. And so, this kingdom of God on earth is made up of individuals who have, who have and continue to respond to God in Christ Jesus. Individually, they are called Christians, they are called saints, disciples, believers, just to name a few. Collectively, they are referred to as the church or the body of Christ, among other things. If you've loved obeying God's will and believe in obeying Christ, the kingdom is the form of the Holy Spirit and the word of God uh, in the form of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. They are in you as an individual. The kingdom is in you. And at the same time, you as an individual will become part of the kingdom of God, comprised of all of those who have been saved both in heaven and on earth. The apostles had a hard time understanding the nature of the kingdom to the extent where they never even asked the obvious question or questions. Those being, what is the purpose of the kingdom? Why was it formed? What is it all leading to? And so in this study, what we're attempting to do, what we've been talking about is the kingdom of heaven on earth. But we haven't really discussed the kingdom of heaven in heaven. Okay, so an important point to remember in all of this is if we are part of the kingdom here on earth, it means we will also participate in the kingdom of heaven that is in heaven. And we can praise God for that. The kingdom here on earth is the kingdom. However, it is not yet glorified. It is not yet exalted as the heavenly kingdom. This is the end game of Christianity. The kingdom of heaven in heaven is already glorified and those who are part of it have things that we don't have yet. Things that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he described the features of the glorified body which are also the features of the glorified kingdom. For example, incorruptibility, no sin or weakness, supernatural power, 
not subject to time or natural laws, eternal existence, no death, spiritual glory, spiritual gifts perfected to the point where they are a source of light that emanates from within us. The glorified state will also enable us to become like Christ in power as well as like Christ in personality and righteousness. This is the reward. Don't we get it? God sent Christ Jesus to show us what was waiting for us. The end game, if you will, is that you and I become exactly like him. When preachers say, keep your eye on the cross or keep your eye on Jesus, they are saying, keep your eye on the one who you will become like because this focus will guide your steps. The glorified state is what we are moving toward. The exact position of the Godhead is our final destination. The return of Jesus at the end of the world will signal the joining together of the kingdom of God on earth with the kingdom of God in heaven. And together with the angels and Christ Jesus himself, we will be united within the Godhead to exist in this way for eternity. We can read more about this at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, as well as 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 and 24. So in closing, the kingdom of God here on earth, Daniel predicted it. Christ Jesus proclaimed it and died for it. The apostles opened its doors with their preaching. People have entered in through faith expressed in obedience, and we all await the return of Christ Jesus for his glorification and his final eternal exaltation. In the meanwhile, I want to remind you of one thing. We are the kingdom in this world. Not Muslims or Hindus or various uh, sects claiming Christ. Let this be comfort when feeling weak or dry or outnumbered. Let this be a comfort to the church when it seems that you're not making progress or we're not, uh, we're not moving forward. We're basically going backwards and seem to have many problems. Remember that despite all of these things, we may be reduced, discouraged, and unsure, but we cannot be defeated. Matthew 16 to verse 18. And so, I pray that God blesses you as you build up the kingdom of Christ and wait patiently for his return. Remember also that you are the kingdom. Let that direct the way you live. Let that direct, um, let that be the substance rather of your strength and your hope. So then, I read him for next week. Matthews chapter 5 verses 6 through 7, uh, chapter 6 through 7. Remember this, the kingdom is on earth, but spiritual in nature. The kingdom was the subject of prophecy and was also spiritual in nature and has been established. Finally, if you have not entered the kingdom by confessing Christ Jesus and expressing your faith in him through repentance and baptism, the opportunity to step in is always before you. On the other hand, if for some reason you have left the kingdom,
because of unfaithfulness or continued willful sin, be restored through a prayer of repentance to secure your rightful place in God's glorious kingdom. Thank you all for joining me tonight. I look forward to seeing you next week as we continue this study.